If you would like to sit down, that's okay too. Other, either way, turn to Exodus chapter 40. We're going to read the, the tail end of that chapter, verses 34 through 38. Thank you, uh, Brian. It's good to have Brian and Brandy back with us. Uh, they've been enjoying the blessings of grandchildren in Wyoming, but it's good for them to be home here. Uh, it's also good to see Luke Basler. So Luke is a part of our church family. We send him out of here to be a chaplain in the United States Army. And uh, is it uh, captain or major or? About to be major, major Luke Basler. So uh, thank you for your service, brother. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Exodus chapter 40, beginning at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word, and that we would have this treasure that we would be able to read it and to study it, we are grateful. But we would pray for the presence of your Spirit with us, for we don't merely want to know some things from your Word. We want to be changed, transformed by your Word. To that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we conclude our time together in the book of Exodus. There's two things I want us to think about this morning from the passage that we've just read. First thing I want to note is something about the glorious presence of the Lord that culminates the Lord's work. There's something of a completing function going on here in this passage. But secondly, uh, I want us to note something about the glorious presence of the Lord that commences the Lord's work. There's something of a fresh new start going on here as well. So let's look at those two points one at a time. The glorious presence of the Lord that culminates the Lord's work. The whole book of Exodus, I suggest to you, has been making its way to this point. There's been an intentional design to everything that is led up to this, that the glory of God would come down and be present with God's people. The, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the book of Exodus began, uh, were enslaved. They were held captive to Egyptian captivity. And Egypt, arguably at this time, was the world superpower, the mighty nation of 
Egypt, the mighty king, Pharaoh himself. And these were the people. Pharaoh was the man who ruled over the nation of Israel. And yet God remembered his promises that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God heard the cries of his people in their bondage. And God dispatched a rescue program. The overarching theme of the book of Exodus is not simply how God rescues Israel from Egyptian captivity, although that looms large. No, the overarching theme of the book of Exodus is that in how God rescues Israel from Egyptian captivity, Israel, Egypt, and all of the known world would know that the Lord is God. That the one true God, the maker of all things, has just entered into Israel's experience and has rescued them. This one true God is Israel, now Egypt, and now the whole world knows is unrivaled and is unstoppable. He is faithful to his promises. He is good to his people. He is wise and powerful in how he works out his promises and purposes. He is holy and he is just in the giving of his law that his people might know how to serve him. He is gracious and he is merciful to hang near a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Behold, this is the God whom we deal with even today. So this morning, we move quickly. Uh, we, we, last week, my, how things have flown by. We were in Exodus 34. And now this week, we are in Exodus 40. What happened in between? Well, between chapters 35 and the first um, three quarters of the chapter 40, uh, the temple plans that were described in chapters 25 through 31 have now been constructed. And so chapters 35 through the first part of chapter 40 uh, describe the implementation of the Lord's instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 40 um, it describes how they erected the tent and how they placed all of the prescribed furnishings in the tent. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 40, verses 11 through 16 describe the, how the priests, as per previous instructions, how the priests would be consecrated to perform their duties at the tabernacle. And verses 17 through 31 describe the hanging of the curtains, the wall, the, the wall, the curtains that serve as the walls to differentiate the various rooms in the tabernacle, uh, as well as other finishing touches. And in fact, particularly in 17 through 31, um, something is 
just mentioned almost every verse or every other verse in this section, and that is, as the construction project is being implemented, we are, it is noted that everything is being done as per the Lord's commands. In fact, from 35 to 40, chapters 35 through 40, that, that phrase, as the Lord had commanded, is mentioned some 21 times. It's found in verse 21 in chapter 40, verse 23 in chapter 40, verses 23 and 24 of chapter 40, verse 27 of chapter 40. In other words, it, it's very fastidiously noted that the way this thing goes up is exactly the way that God had given instructions for it. And, and as the finishing touches were complete, then we transition to what we've just read. The tabernacle has been put up, and now the glory of God comes down. Verse 34, once again, and the, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what are we to make of this thought of the glory of the Lord? It's, it's, it's here in this passage. It's tied to the manifestation of this cloud, at least by day it's a cloud. And, and, and yet it's not just some ordinary cloud, although there's a visible presence to it. Uh, and, and, and yet this cloud that is here over the tent and filling the tent is none other than a visible manifestation of the glory of God. God is not physically embodied. God is, in a sense, invisible to the human eye. Paul writes to Peter and, and, and describes him as the invisible God, but here is a visible, seen, felt manifestation of the invisible God. The glory of God is, is not merely one of God's attributes, like God is just or God is love or God is merciful, though we can talk about those things as being attributes of God. The, the glory of God is not merely uh, one of those attributes. No, I would suggest to you that the glory of God is the essence of God himself. It is the manifest, demonstrated, physically seen essence of God. It is, it is all of the attributes of God uh, comprised and, and therefore shown in a way that is visible to the human eye, to the human experience. It is a spectacular radiance of the beauty of God, the very being of God. This temple has been built, and now the glory of God has filled this tabernacle. Look at what, he said, what, look at what it says next in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
I want you to see that as somewhat strange or odd. And what I mean by that is this. In Exodus 19, when God talks about how he rescued Egypt, Israel from Egyptian captivity, it says that he mounted them on wings like eagles to bring them to himself. One important aspect of God's work of rescuing the people of Israel from Egyptian captivity was so that that rescued people would live in proximity, in relationship with the one true God. God wanted to dwell near and with his people. And the tabernacle was a part of his design as the means by which God would dwell among his people and the means by which God's people would dwell with him and approach him. All along, throughout the whole scheme of the scripture, you and I were made to dwell with God. And in this particular historical expression of the unfolding purposes of God, I mean, there was a point in the garden when when God dwelt with Adam and Eve. He was present with them in the garden. And certainly there's a future time that we'll speak of in a moment that God will uh, dwell with his people. But here in this juncture of the unfolding of God's plans, God would meet with his people uh, by being present at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp. Uh, and, and so that God was to be central in their lives and in their focus because God wanted to dwell with his people. And yet, the moment God comes down and shows up, Moses can't even go into the tent of meeting. Moses was denied access. So how is it that the purpose of the tabernacle was uh, the means by which God would dwell with and near his people and that his people would dwell with and approach him uh, when nobody can get in there? Well, as strange as it may sound, the fact that Moses was uh, kicked out of the tabernacle when the glory came down was, in fact, a gracious and merciful thing. On the one hand, the very thought of approaching the presence of God, just being with God is a glorious privilege. And yet, on the other hand, This glorious God is a holy God. He's a completely other being. He's not a larger version of humanity. He's not just a little bit smarter, a little bit stronger uh, than what we are. 
He is altogether a different being. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And he's morally pure. So how do we get into the presence of this holy and glorious God? If Moses can't get in, <laughs> I think that's why it's so important, even though we're not going to now jump into the book of Leviticus, that's so important that the book of Leviticus comes next. Because the book of Leviticus teaches us that in order to approach God at his tabernacle, in order to come into the presence of a holy God, we come into his presence through a blood sacrifice. And the book of Leviticus is all about uh, the, the various and sundry kinds of sacrifices, and yet the book of Leviticus um, reaches an, a climax point in, in, in talking about the, the, the day of atonement, the, the high and holy day in Israel's calendar, in which on that day, the, the, the uh, high priest and this is the only time in the year he can do this, enters into the most holy place and sprinkles the blood of the slaughtered animal on top of the, the lid, the throne, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And by so doing, uh, cleanses Israel of their sins and removes their sins from their midst so that they could gather in God's presence to worship him. In other words, what, what, we are, what we are being shown here, even in the denied access to Moses, is that the only way to safely enjoy the presence of God is through a substitutionary blood sacrifice. Now, these things that are mentioned in the book of Exodus, these things that are described in the book of Leviticus, these things that unfold for us in the rest of the Old Covenant are, if you, if you would, uh, pictorial previews of a fuller and grander sacrifice, of an infinitely more superior and um, final uh, blood atonement. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And then the next verse in Hebrews 1, it said, And after he made purification for our sins, he sat down. Now, the similarities and the contrasts between uh, Israel and Moses being denied access into the tent of meeting um, where the glory of God is showed up and manifested itself uh, here in the book of Exodus is that in a sense um, they are being denied access to the glory of God 
until there is a blood sacrifice as specified in the book of Leviticus. But now that Jesus has come, it's one and the same. For in Jesus, we see the, the glory and the presence of God himself and all of his beautiful radiance and being. And yet this Jesus who embodies the glory of God is also the very one who becomes the blood sacrifice that makes it possible for now us to come into God's you see, whether we think about this from the book of Exodus and Leviticus or whether we think about this in light of the unfolding implications in the new covenant, you and I, this is the point we, we want to make here, uh, you and I were made to dwell in relationship with God. That was lost in the garden because in Adam, each of us, have now sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We both inherited his corruption and we've been more than capable of creating our own corruption. But the result of corruption is that we are cut off from being in the safe, being in the presence of God in a way of safety, in a way of life, and not in a way of judgment and death. But that is what the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant taught us and pointed us to. And that is that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, it was no longer merely the pictorial previews of a blood sacrifice. It was no longer the blood of goats or bulls that painted us a portrait of our need for a blood sacrifice, but it was the one whom those previous sacrifices alluded to and pointed to, uh, that, that it is the blood of Jesus Christ himself who, though God, took on flesh and became man. And as the God-man, he did what we have not done. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled every nook and cranny of righteousness. He pleased his Father in heaven flawlessly, and yet this Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin, not his own sin, he had none. But for the sins of people like you and I, that this, that, and any and all who would now, even this morning, turn and trust in Jesus, Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Jesus Christ becomes the substitute who took upon himself our sin and the curse of our sin and the condemnation of our sin and the punishment of our sin and the debt of our sin so that finally and fully it is paid for in the blood of Jesus so that people like you and I could experience what we were originally made to experience. Life lived in relationship with the God who made us. And that begins now, and, and, yet it, and yet it has a glorious future to it. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it describes the new heavens and the new earth as our destiny. And it says, and I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And then he says uh, a few verses prior to that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Christ has come. 
and now through Christ. Any and all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ have open access to God as the Father who loves us dearly. Turn to Christ. Trust only in Him. But I have another point that I want to make quickly, and that is, while everything seems to culminate in one sense upon the glory of God coming down and uh, residing above the tabernacle and filling the tabernacle, uh, there is a, a there is something else in play. That is, things don't end with the book of Exodus. Uh, there is another stage of Israel's life and work and witness. There's a journey that uh, has begun and a journey that now continues. And, and that gets played out, ironically, with the aid of the manifest presence of the glory of God, the, the very glory that kept them away on one level is the glory that will stay with them to guide them and to guard them. Look at verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would, would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that glory that, 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 that demonstrated God's desire to dwell with his people, that, that glory also is going to be now with them in all of their travels, throughout all of their troubles, God will be with them all the way. By manifesting his glory uh, in a cloud by day and by manifesting his glory by fire at night. So whether it's day or whether it's night, the glory of God will be seen as guarding and guiding the Lord's people. He will guide them. As he alluded to back in chapter 34, God is going to get his people to the land that he promised them, the land that's currently filled with the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites. And, well, I don't know. I can't remember all of the ones that we read last week. But, but, but God will get his people to that land. He will safely deliver them home. And yet in between now and when he safely delivers them home, he will guide them and guard them. He will defend them all along the way. And we, if we were to keep going from the book of Exodus and read immediately into the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, we would, we would see the recounting of the Lord's faithfulness as to how his glorious presence was with them all along the way to guide them and to guard them. And that guiding and guarding of the glory of God that we see here in Exodus in the, new, in the Old Covenant is analogous to what unfolds in an even greater, sweeter way, in a sense, for us in the New Covenant. And it focuses upon Jesus. 
Jesus, who is the fullest manifestation of the glory of God, who not only laid down his life as the full and final sacrifice for our sins, but who now dispatches his presence to dwell within his people by the Spirit. And guess what the Spirit is up to today? Well, at least two things. We could go further, but in carrying the analogy about how the glory of God guided and guarded the people of Israel until they safely reached their destination, the Spirit of God, the indwelling presence of the glory of Jesus now guides and guards us today, right now, throughout this week, by the, inglor- by the, by, by the glorious indwelling of Jesus, through the indwelling Spirit, Jesus will get each and every one of his children safely home, and Jesus will guard each and every one of his children all along the way till we get home. That doesn't mean that we will be exempt from troubles. That doesn't mean that he will take us um, in, in a pathway that doesn't go through troubles, but it does mean that when he puts us in troubles, he safely delivers us. He is safely present, he is fully present with us in all of our troubles, in all of our travels, throughout all of our journey. And that resets how you and I might be able to make sense of some of the struggles and difficulties of life. For it is the very glory of Jesus that is the practical implication for how you and I look at and experience suffering. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18 in particular, the Apostle Paul says this, For I consider that the suffering of this present time... See, we're not exempt from suffering. But God has not abandoned us in the midst of our suffering. For I consider that the suffering of this present time uh, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That the Spirit of God, Romans 8 tells us, bears witness that with our spirits that we are children of God. And part of that bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God is that the Spirit of God holds out this sense, this assurance, this confidence that, that we will get safely home, that there's now no longer any condemnation that hangs over us belonging to Jesus, that the love of God is fully and forever upon us and nothing so separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And in the meantime, it is the Spirit of God himself that guards us and guides us in our journey home. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says something similarly, chapter 4, rather, verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction... If I hadn't read sections of 2 Corinthians 
and seen some of Paul's afflictions that he experienced, I would want to grab him and choke him when he refers to our afflictions as light and momentary. But compared to what he's about to say, it is true. For, I can, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the sufferings that we face here today are not thwarting God's plans for us to see an even fuller sense of His glory. They are actually contributing to His plans to open our eyes and to show us an even greater glimpse of glory. Or the way Peter would say it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, talking again about suffering, but in this case, suffering in the sense of being persecuted for the cause of Christ and the gospel. He says there, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And he says this, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. In this present journey home, when we experience persecution and sorrows and sadnesses and trials and sufferings, those are not, those are not indications that God has abandoned us. They are indications that he is working out his good, glorious, grand purposes for us. He's planning to get us home safely to show us the, 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 the unrelenting fullness of all of his glory. We were made for that destination. And so in the meantime, we see glimpses of his glory by the very indwelling of the spirit of glory even as that spirit of glory is but a down payment, earnest money of an even greater glory that we will see. And so what are we to do? How are we to live in the meantime? Well, to put a spin on words, we who are indwelt by the spirit of glory, we who are destined to see the fullness of glory, we are to be a people who seek to glorify God. Uh, what does that mean, to glorify God? In a sense, we've pivoted uh, in terms of our terms for a second. We, we, we will be shown the glory of God even as we are now indwelt by the spirit of glory. We, are to, we, are, we can glorify him by when we look to him in his word, by his spirit, and see him as he gloriously is, and thereby reflect that glory, live accordingly in our sufferings. Two verses later from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, that talks about being persecuted for the cause of Christ. The, the spirit of glory rests on us. He says in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 4 uh, that we are to glorify the name of Jesus in our persecutions or whether maybe our story at this season isn't one of suffering. Maybe it's one of abundance. Maybe we're able to experience 
the plenty of good food and good drink. Suffering is far from us in this season. How are we to glorify God in that occasion? The good food and the good drink that we experience today is but a sliver of a taste to the fullness of glory that we will experience in the days to come. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, what we're to do and how we eat and how we drink or in anything else we endeavor to do in life, it must correspond with that which honors and glorifies God and it must be done in the spirit of thankfulness and gratitude to God. What are we to do in the broader general manner of life or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, let your conduct among the Gentiles be honorable so that they may speak uh, so that they may speak against you as evil dealers uh, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation in other words they may try to slander us but it's fake and it's false may our conduct be that when things finally get settled, when all accounts finally get made right, that, that even the Gentiles who have slandered us in the meantime will have to give glory to God because of the conduct of our life in the midst of their persecution upon us. You see, every aspect of our life, or, or even Romans chapter 4, just simply in how we are confident in the promises of God, that is a way that we, when we live according to God's promises, we honor him and we glorify him. Speaking of Abraham, it says in Romans 4.20, uh, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When you and I take God at his word and we believe it, we order our life according to his word, then we are confident in his word. And when we are confident in his word, then our lives give glory to God. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us in and through your son. Thank you for what you are doing for us presently by the presence of your Spirit. Father, we're thankful that you have promised us a glorious destination. Father, we're grateful that you have dropped the Spirit of glory within us even this day at this moment. And we would pray, Father, that the reality of the presence of the Spirit of glory would make a difference in our lives this week in how we would persevere through persecution, and how we would express gratitude in plenty, and how we would um, represent you in the very conduct of our lives, and in how we would rest confidently in the promises of your word. For Father, we acknowledge this morning through Jesus Christ that we are not our own, but that our lives, our bodies, are in fact a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within us. We have been bought with the price. So, dear Father, we who have been promised a glorious inheritance,
May we glorify you this week. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.